FM, and this is Art Then and Now with me, your host, Anna Gammons. This is a show where we explore art from the past and art from the present in order to understand how we as humans express ourselves throughout time. Our theme this week is the art of ethics, and I'll be speaking to Tom Rowland and Claire Campion about the responsibility of designers in making more ethical choices. But first, we are taking a trip into the world of Andy Warhol and looking at the way some of his artistic designs threw into question the ethics of art. Welcome! So, Andy Warhol was born in 1928. He was an American commercial illustrator and is best known for his position as a leading artist of the visual movement, pop art, before his death in 1987. Some of his most famous works include Marilyn Monroe series, which, if you haven't seen, I don't know where you've been hiding, but it's that bright coloured images of Marilyn. They're really, really kind of vivacious. They're sort of, you know, fluorescent greens, fluorescent pinks, um, really, really beautiful, but they're absolutely everywhere. So he's very well known for those. He's also known for his Campbell's soup cans, which is what I'm going to be talking about today in terms of ethics and some of the things behind them, some of the ideas that drove his work. He was incredibly provocative in the art movement because Warhol liked to appropriate images of consumer culture, which he used as an inspiration for a lot of his art pieces, and the Campbell soup cans is no exception. It was modelled on actual soup cans made by the Campbell Soup Company, which produced between 1961 and 62, and they're among the most of his famous works. They're sometimes referred to as 32 soup cans because, I mean, obviously there are 32 of these pieces. I know there's so many of the same can of soup. Um, But, as I said, they were often referred to as 32 soup cans for that reason. Um, And they each measure 51 by 41 centimetres. And they are an accurate representation of the 32 real-life flavours that the company offered at the time. So each soup can corresponds to an actual flavour that the company was offering. So for example, there's minestrone, there's cream of mushroom, there's green pea, you know, I many, many more, 32 more uh, to be exact. But um, this kind of piece of artwork often feels to me like the sort of piece that my non-arty friends would say to me, oh, Anna, this isn't real art. And they'd sort of roll their eyes at me and say, why are we looking at soup cans? Um, and I sort of agree I sort of disagree, Um, but Warhol was inspired by the very mundane of his everyday reality, and he was pretty vocal about consuming the soup himself every single day for lunch for 20 years. Oh my goodness, I don't, that sounds pretty dull to me, but, um, and the fact that each canvas is the same exact soup, the only difference being the flavour, was kind of a recreation of the repetition of advertising and mass media and mass consumerism that he and everyone else in America was being bombarded with at the time. So it's also kind of a reflection of his repetition um, in his everyday existence. So he's kind of having the same soup over and over again. He's being bombarded with images, the same images over and over again. And it's kind of a reflection of that. So so where was it shown? Who saw the piece? Well, all the hungry people. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, in 1962, um, everybody in Los Angeles flocked to the Fergus Gallery. Um, sorry, the Ferris Gallery, um, as I said, in 1962, where it was first exhibited and they were displayed on shelves as if they were part, as if they were real soup cans, which I found really comical, as if it was like a grocery aisle that you'd walk in and see uh, all these kind of pieces of art lined up. I don't know, I just found that really funny um, <laughs> because it's so mundane. Um, but it was the first time pop art had been sort of taken to centre stage uh, in the West Coast and many people were very, very 
suspended because the images weren't made using sort of the luscious paint you get and uh, of kind of the impressionists or the you know the more abstract impressionism which at the time in post-war America was incredibly popular nope instead these images were sort of semi-mechanized and they sort of seemed to they was they were hand painted and silk screened which was the process but they sort of represented what America was being bombarded with on a daily basis, that kind of advertising, mass production of goods. Um, and they were the sort of things that people were seeing in the supermarket. It didn't offer any kind of escape from the mundane. And people didn't really take very kindly to seeing in an art gallery the same sort of things that they were seeing in a supermarket. Because um, Warhol's idea behind this was sort of he wanted to reject nuance and kind of honour a more kind of uniform um, clarity. But this kind of threatened the ideals of the art world because it sort of embraced the idea, as I said, of abstract expressionism and the beauty of the individual. And Warhol was not about that at all. So it was very kind of received very controversially. But in terms of ethics... A lot of people said that he was sort of reducing art to a trip to the shops. It was mimicking the gross capitalism of post-war America. And a lot of people took issue with that. The Times magazine was quoted as saying that a group of painters have come to the common conclusion that the most banal and even vulgar trappings of modern civilization can, when transposed to canvas, become art. A very powerful quote, a fairly accurate quote as well um, in some respects, uh, but it kind of depends on where you think he's coming from, which I'm going to explore a little bit more of. But it was seen as very unethical to promote the vices of the everyday but Warhol had a really, really positive view of the everyday and the, he, he sort of said to be wanting to democratise art and he famously said, I don't think art should be for the select few, I actually think it should be for the masses, which, as you can imagine, the elite didn't love that idea because they were, you know, taking their fancy fancy selves off to the gallery and viewing <laughs> beautiful artwork. But Warhol was like, no, I want everyone to be able to see this artwork in the same way that we all take a trip to the supermarket. I'm going to kind of democratise this idea of art. There's no such thing as high-class art. I want this to be for everyone. I want everyone to embrace it, which I think it kind of sort of backfired, sort of didn't, but it did make him the most and also highly most highest-priced living artist in America. So, you know, he's doing something right. Um, but anyway, he also, Andy, denied any relationship with the Campbell's Soup Company and said that the whole point would be lost if there was any commercial tie-ins to it. So he wasn't really... He wasn't promoting it in a sense of like, it wasn't like a kind of seedy deal where they said, you know, if you paint our soup, we will reward you financially. It wasn't anything to do with that. Um, my personal uh, perspective is that it was a little bit attention seeking and Warhol was kind of said to have a little bit of an ongoing um, repertoire with Liechtenstein, who uh, is the, basically the creator of those really amazing comic strip uh art sort of forms they're amazing they're sort of based on sort of the tragedy of everyday relationships but they're really really beautiful and Warhol sort of saw him he was sort of competing with Liechtenstein and and sort of saw it as a bit of a um a way to kind of gain attention um and he's also stated quite a few times about his love of money and he was even um even became very popular for painting the uh, the dollar note as well um in the same format you know the the repetition as a way to kind of uh, explore the idea of capitalism in America which was uprising since the war and turning people a little bit loopy and calling into question um a lot of the ethics behind 
um, and the American kind of constitution, the American, as I said, capitalism, the politics, the everyday lives. And this is sort of what he was putting on show. I also think because the pieces are silk screened and then they're, they're hand painted afterwards, I sort of think that adds a more personal touch to them. Um, and a more sort of thoughtful way of maybe presenting something that we see in the everyday as a kind of a chance to see the everyday in a different way, perhaps. I don't know whether that's a bit of a stretch, but that's kind of like what I like to uh, to see it as. And I was very fortunate that I got to see Little Campbell's Soup can, in brackets, minestrone, which <laughs> made me laugh again, um, in, in the Sotheby's um, exhibition. They had ahead of their contemporary art evening sales, Sotheby's were displaying it. And it was on estimate for, oh God, this is painful, 1.5 to 2 million pounds for this, for just the one edition of mini soup can, which, oh my goodness, I just, I kept thinking that that is 1.5 to 2 million actual soup cans that I can have for dinner. <laughs> That's just the way my brain works. Um, <laughs> so that was crazy. Um, but yeah, so that is some of the ethics behind the pop art movement and in particular Warhol's interpretation of pop art. Afternoon, you are listening to Resonance 104.4, and this is Art Then and Now. Hopefully, you found that an interesting look at Warhol and some of the ethical debates of the post war pop art movement. Now, into my interview with designers Tom and Claire, who opened my eyes to some of the ethical issues of designing brand packaging, which is something I have not thought of but is absolutely fascinating. So, here we go. Enjoy this interview. I'm Claire Campion. Um, do you guys want to introduce yourselves? My name's Tom Rowland. Um, I run an independent design business in South London called South Rim Studio. And I'm Claire Campion. And I'm an interaction and experience designer. Uh, I've been working in London for eight years now. We are going to be talking about ethics in design. Let's start off with some context, though, because I want our listeners to be able to understand how you guys got to where you are and what your roles are currently. I think it's safe to say that the first seven or eight years of my career were probably fashion and retail based um, but over the yeah. over the last few years um, started to branch out somewhat into the into the, the wider world mm-hmm. of, um, of graphic design and now now I find myself um, yeah running my running my business independently. Yeah, similarly to Tom, I think I was always, um, I always geared towards the visual side of things. I sort mm. of came from a house of designers. Um, that always helps, especially when yeah. a career that's not always as clear cut. Maybe. Yeah, absolutely. And in in Ireland, you can't really study design mm. at a school level, so mm. it was more I could just see that my older brothers and sisters had gone down that route and. It really appealed to me, mm-hmm. and our college is always fun, isn't it? So I really fancied that. Absolutely. Um, is if you're good at it, if you're talented, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> As the clearly both of you are. Um, okay, so let's start with the hardest question. Why Why are we talking about ethics and design? I mean, I'm not sure about Claire, but personally, um, I struggle or have struggled um, to see... Um, Essentially, the values in the in the the skills that that, that I possess, and as as we become, um, you know, more conscious of um, ethical issues and environmental mm. issues, um, you know, I, I struggled to see, you know, where I was able to apply my skills to yeah. to to make a difference, and I think perhaps 
as a as a designer you don't you don't always have the the luxury of you know working on uh, ethical projects yeah, or environmentally friendly projects and and yeah. now and now I think um I'm I'm beginning to think a little bit more about you know uh, yeah. my the value of my skill set and perhaps how, how it can be applied to to the greater good I'm a little bit less on the branding side of things so as a interaction designer I kind of look mm. at how people interact with the world around them and mm-hmm. I think I've just become quite conscious that users or consumers are overwhelmed with media yeah. at the moment and just oh my goodness yeah always <laughs> taking things in and uh, just the idea that as designers we're a lot of the time producing that content mm-hmm. and that flow of things for just people to constantly take yeah. in and consume and the idea that maybe as a designer you want to make something that enriches someone's life rather than just add to that mm. do you think maybe this is this kind of ethical consciousness that um you two have sort of become really aware of do you think it's a backlash from our kind of cultural o- overindulgence as a as a society <laughs> that's not just that's not a big question but um yeah if I understand what you're asking correctly I think it is a lot to do with things have changed so quickly in the past decade Mm. let's say about how people consume information and media Mm -hmm. that I think yeah we've had to we and we will have to adapt to that as designers Mm. and I think it's making a lot of people including us be a little bit more reflective maybe mm-hmm. yeah about what we choose to absorb yeah yeah uh, absorb as consumers and create as designers yeah yeah i think yeah, like yeah. the 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 consumption is is one thing but what really interests me and this kind of i guess builds on something that claire mentioned a few minutes ago is essentially the 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 responsibility of a designer and mm-hmm. kind of the part we play in in that chain as well that yeah, that perhaps sure. um you know um not everyone is always aware of a really easily digestible example of this was mm. something that was in the news a couple of weeks a uh, couple of weeks back where Poundland was giving uh for Valentine's Day you know a uh, sort of satirical gift of the gift of nothing yeah which and it was, was like a, packaged an air wasn't it essentially yeah like, so it was yeah, you know a heart-shaped sure. um package you know of air and you know mm-hmm. like people can you know will hold poundland up and say okay you know why why is this even on the shelves yeah but then you know at some point this would also have fallen in the lap of a of a designer to yeah. design to design the packaging to design um you know the 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 graphics that went mm. on it perhaps and then you know part of i feel part of the responsibility then also lies with you know with lies the, with those people yeah. as well i mean um, there's there's a chain of, of kind of of custody with these things and there's a chain of responsibility like it it can start at the top but it's also very much what companies are producing is also influenced by what consumers are buying. So obviously it's responsibility of the consumer and the designer and the company that is employing those designers. As designers yourself, how much do you think it is your responsibility to make more ethical choices in your design? Can you even, can you afford to have that luxury of that choice? I think, I think it is an absolute luxury and designers won't always be able to say no mm. to doing some of these projects because yeah. at the end of the day it is a job and some people don't have that luxury to say no however I do think it is a responsibility of the designer to be educated 
and to just yeah learn about the the world they're working in mm. and learn about the impact it has mm. that opens up really nicely the the uh, the other side of the coin if you will and mm. that and that is um, okay we can we can look at the companies that we choose to work for and are they making the right choices and yeah. you know we can make um, choices about what we apply our skills to as we were talking about the luxury of, of that responsibility do you think that young designers that are kind of coming out of university, they've got their degree in design and they want to find their first job, do you think that that's something that they should be considering or can consider? I think a lot of that actually falls on the educators. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think there's a lot of pressure on young designers at the moment. There's a lot of design graduate graduates coming out mm. of universities. Like The numbers are rising. Mm. Um, yeah. And I think they should be educated within those universities and those courses as to the choices you can make and how you can educate yourself and how mm. you can learn about this world you're coming out into. Yeah. Um, because it won't always be obvious to mm. a young designer coming out into the world looking for an internship. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How to how to learn about that company mm. and what they're doing. In order to educate yourself as a designer, it's about getting out and speaking to other people mm-hmm. in other industries, other experts who yeah. know a lot more about these different worlds than we do as designers. Because yeah. we can often be just a bit pigeonholed into thinking about the way something looks or the way mm-hmm. uh, it will be perceived by an audience. So getting out and speaking to other experts and collaborating with other experts mm-hmm. or just chatting to other people over a coffee mm-hmm. I think is a really important way to educate yourself as a designer. Yeah. And that that happens at any stage in your yeah. career because of course design is part of the the bigger um the bigger kind of con- structure of consumerism in Absolutely. that you're dealing with scientists you're dealing with yeah. um advertisers you're dealing with bigger companies you're dealing with mathematicians you're dealing with a mm. lot of things and um certainly yes although kind of design is the brand of what of the concept it's a massive concept within every kind of Absolutely. In your designing, so talking to other people that are also contributing. I want to talk a bit about what we mean by ethics in design. What is ethical design? What is not ethical design? On just on just a purely basic, like what are we? We you know we mentioned Poundland gift of nothing, which we obviously know is an unethical thing because it's just plastic. We're making something that inevitably is going to last thousands of years in a landfill mm. um, and that is that kind of is obviously unethical but what kind of other things maybe more subtle things and maybe more obvious things do we can we kind of class as unethical and ethical? Um, well, Tom and I spoke about this a little bit I think we're at a very interesting and kind of dangerous crossover point mm. in consumerism in that there's Within our world anyway, and let's say within our bubble, there's sort of a move towards being more conscious yep. about sourcing um, yeah. more ethical products, making sure things are a eating little better for the meat, environment. Things like that. Yeah, eating yeah. less meat. For sure. However, some of these messages are very confusing. Um, mm-hmm. I was taking HelloFresh boxes as an example. Yeah. HelloFresh boxes, they promote eating at home rather than eating out every Mm. night of the week that's great they promote less waste because the portions are specific to how many people are eating that's great yes and they support i think a lot of the stuff is like locally sourced yeah i know it's ethically sourced stuff yeah yeah but then these boxes arrive and the packaging is Mm. disgraceful it's Mm. packets within packets within packets and yeah it's just 
that side of things seems mm. to have been completely ignored. And you can kind of understand why it has happened. It's in the name. You know, they have to keep the stuff fresh. Sure. But surely as designers could think of a better way to do that. I think um, I, don't, I don't necessarily agree with there's this such a thing as ethical design. I think there's probably such a thing as application of design for ethical good yeah. but then yeah. Claire, Claire raises a really good point with what she just said about mm. packaging as um, you know application for design and yeah. you know when 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 that company approached a design agency I, I think the correct decision you know would have been made to ask that company okay so what what are you trying to do here are you are you you know are you trying to cover all bases uh, from mm-hmm. from an ethical standpoint or you know, at the end of the day, you trying to support small businesses. Yeah, are you trying trying to support small businesses, or you know, the sort of more gross end of the spectrum, are you just trying to make more, make more money? Um, And and I think that's that. It's choosing. It's probably more choosing what you what you apply design to, um, and kind of understanding its power. I would say that design is inherently political. How do you feel as a designer that what you're doing is that it always comes with an added gravitas to it in that sense. There's certain campaigns out there that have made massive differences. So we were talking about even the anti-smoking campaign or yeah. huge drink driving yeah. campaign and in of Ireland. Packaging but... is a huge Im- influence on that. Yeah. You you kind of when you see a cigarette packet now, you don't it, it doesn't look like a luxury um mm. uh, kind of um it's not appealing in any way now. Um mm. because there, I know there was a movement for kind of um plain box packaging and, and certainly Australia and the UK. I think they started it started in Australia. But now mm. we sort of have these messages on packaging which are really hard hitting. Um and that's a really interesting yeah. point. Do, well do the you... irony the irony of what you're saying there actually is that uh the, the culture of cigarette packaging is actually an anti-design philosophy. Yeah, so the, sure. the, the differentiation between the brands, mm. um, you know, Silk Cut being marketed towards, um, you know, luxury of the cigarette brands, I yeah. guess. You know, we find when when their identities um, disappear, um, yeah, it's almost like uh, an anti uh, an anti-design um, policy, yeah. but then certainly the irony within the irony is that uh, you know even the anti-design packaging also has to it's be de- still, also has yeah. to be designed by a you know by by a graphic designer, yeah. um, which is yeah the yeah. sort of a, a second point of interest. And, that, and that's influenced by again that's that's the law influencing what designers are doing. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a way for it to work the other way around? Like, is there a way for designers to have an influence on? like kind of create yeah. a social movement almost absolutely i think and i think that's what i'm talking about with the start of the conversation mm. i think if if designers are serious about this and think about it for a moment there's so many topics that we as designers could take uh to educate people mm. um and i think it can work the other way around yeah. for sure if yeah. you start those conversations yeah. and try um yeah, because all the things we're talking about today could be turned into a campaign with a little bit of work and speaking to the right people mm. to just try to educate people a little bit more. Yeah, 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 yeah. As kind of the millennial um, generation are becoming more, I say, conscious about ethics, um, 
kind of veganism is a big thing eating Mm -hmm. less meat is a big thing um perhaps shopping more um consciously in terms of what brands we're deciding and there's a huge stigma now against um you know places like primark i really hope that it's not a passing fad that we all decide to be more conscious of the world um but do you think that's kind of is that going to help what you're doing? Do you think that the fact that people are becoming more ethical? I think so. Yeah, I think it's just a starting point. And, and young people have to start somewhere. Particularly. And I think, as you say, a lot of it at this point is just chat. Yeah. And although we talk about it, the everyday reality is a lot of these people are just talking. But that's an okay starting point. Mm. These things have to start somewhere. Yeah. And I think fast fashion is an excellent example of it. Mm-hmm. Um, Because what it does is, if those conversations begin... It just means that some of us think twice. We, we do need to get the rest of the population or the rest of the world thinking about these things mm. and considering considering what they consume. Then, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, it's um, advertising plays a really large part in 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 what we can in what yeah. we consume. How we construct and, our lifestyles. You know, at, at, at well. the end of the day, if uh, if advertisers are able to trick people to putting mm. things in their body that are bad for them, yeah. you know, can we not use can we not use the you yeah. know the, the same philosophies to to affect social change? Like yeah. Claire said, you know, if with 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 the correct funding, there's absolutely no reason why mm. one of the biggest campaigns in the world couldn't be to cut down on what we're consuming. Yeah. You know, we we choose to consume this information information about what we're um you know what we're doing to the environment and what we're doing to our planet you know i personally choose to consume the news i choose to listen to podcasts on the train i I choose to research these things by myself but i i I think perhaps the the next step is not giving people a choice about consuming this information and and hoping that hoping that some of it sinks in maybe i also think i I totally agree with you and i also but i also think you're more advanced in that you know you're making choices i think there are a lot of people out there that are consuming things and they don't know that they're choosing to does does that make sense like we're we're sort of um bombarded with information all the time and actually empowering the consumer to make better choices i feel would go a long way in what you guys are are campaigning to do or you know what your um ultimate goal is for for kind of more ethical design practice Mm. do you guys have anything lined up project wise that you're doing that maybe encapsulates your kind of want to sort of change things a little bit yeah i shake things up well i think i think claire and myself sort of perhaps recognize that maybe education is is the is the mm-hmm. key to, to to solving these i mean discussions with students or having discussions with with school children about like the application of, of art and design yeah. it certainly is you know it, it seems like a cool job from from the outset and it's certainly something that we have thousands of design graduates and i think yeah. pointing them in the right direction is probably a yeah. super good super good place to to start I love that. I love that answer. I think that sums up perfectly. Um, and I think we're going to be looking out for you then with your next project and what you're doing <laughs> and uh, hopefully making a difference um, in terms of ethical design. Thank you so much for thanks talking so to me, Tom and Claire. This oh, thanks for really having me. Great. You're so welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Tom and Claire. I found that totally fascinating.
a side of design that I never really thought to look into, the ethics about what you're doing and who you're creating media for, who's consuming media. It was absolutely fascinating to me. I loved that catch up with them and I hope you found that interesting too. It is time for Insta highlights before I go this afternoon. Um, in keeping with the theme of consumerism, I wanted to flag up Katie Brinkworth's work on Instagram because it absolutely blew my mind when I saw it. Her, she just photorealist reproductions of sort of glass bottles, um, bourbon, Coca-Cola and Jack Daniels and all these kind of um, really, really sort of famous brands of things. And she does them in really high contrast and high saturation. So the colours are stunning and they're beautiful. And as I said, they're photorealist. And I honestly couldn't believe they weren't photographs the first time I saw them. Her detail is incredible. She does pieces such as there's one called Bullet and Red and White Stripe, but it's at Katie Brinkworth on Instagram. Do check her workout. It is absolutely beautiful. Um, that is all we've got time for this evening. Thank you so much for listening to Art Then and Now with me, Anna Gammons. For any of the images discussed on this week's show or to contact me or the show, visit the Facebook site at the Art Then and Now show. If you want to tell me I did badly, tell me I did well, or just say hello um, and I will reply to you. So thank you so much and a massive thank you to Viv, Viv, sorry, who's been doing my sound engineering. Thank you, Viv. See you next week at 3.30 on Resonance 104.4 FM. Goodbye.